Hello, welcome to I Have Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson. This is episode five of this glorious experiment, my own personal little vanity project. Thank you for your time and your attention with the fifth, though technically sixth, episode of this podcast. Before we get started, let's talk about how you can get in touch with me and in touch with the show as if they're two separate entities. First is the email address, which is IHaveQuestionsPodcast at gmail.com. The show can be found on Twitter at IHaveQ849-22827, or save yourself some trouble and just look up Just look up I Have Questions Podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. The show is on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash I have questions podcast. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring in new listeners, helps promote the show, and helps further establish this podcast as the cornerstone of establishing my own cult of personality. The show is hosted on anchor.fm and through their mobile app. The show is streaming pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts these days, especially iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so forth. I'm going to touch on a couple of different topics, and I'm going to try to be able to get two topics in one show. I've tried this at least three times previously, where I was going to get at least two topics in one episode, and each time I have failed miserably, given my penchant for just not being able to shut up. But tonight, tonight, today, tonight, the evening, the morning, the afternoon, or if you're in some kind of alternate space-time continuum, whenever you're happening to listen to this podcast, I'm going to talk about a couple of different things, and they're very different in most respects. Let's start with one that popped into my mind, and I posted this on my Facebook, my personal Facebook account uh, yesterday. At the time of the recording of this episode, it is Thursday, September 13th, two days after the 17th anniversary of 9-11. And two days ago, kind of late, I posted on my personal Facebook page a question. And the question was, which is the most, which is the more historically significant event? The attack on 9-11 or the attack on Pearl Harbor? The reason I thought of the question was that they're both incredibly horrible events. They're attacks on the United States by an outside power. This isn't like the Civil War or something during the Revolution. This is, these were events that were significant because they were an external attack upon the United States itself on our territory. Pearl Harbor, obviously the attack on Hawaii, 9-11, the attacks on New York, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and of course, United 93, which, um, crashed in Pennsylvania before the uh, the hijackers on that plane could complete their task, which is speculated to be somewhere in Washington, probably their target was the White House. The other thing I was thinking about was that it's been 17 years since 9-11, but there's been very little Hollywood coverage of 9-11. And by that, I mean movies. They're, the first one that, that comes to mind is 
to me is United 93, which is probably, of all the movies as limited as they've been, about 9-11. That one's probably the best. I know Oliver Stone did a movie called World Trade Center a few years later, which I guess had decent reviews. I've never seen it because I'm kind of on this Oliver Stone boycott of sorts. His sycophancy towards Castro and communists in general just disturbs me greatly. I believe there was a Tom Hanks movie a few years ago where he died on 9-11. He died in the Twin Towers and it was a movie about his uh, his widow and her son. And I even I think even Robert Pattinson or Patterson, whichever the case may be, the guy in the Twilight movies, the, the, the twinkly vampire, uh, excuse me, not twinkly, sparkly vampire. I believe he had a movie about 9-11. But there's been very little, compared to Pearl Harbor, there's very, been very little Hollywood treatment of 9-11. And I find that kind of unusual. With World War II and with Pearl Harbor in particular, I mean, there's been, I mean, to this day, uh, there are movies that are made about Pearl Harbor. The most recent one that I can think of is obviously Michael Bay's good-natured, good-hearted attempt at a war movie, conveniently called Pearl Harbor. It just happened to be horribly miscast with Ben Affleck, Josh Hartnett, and Kate Beckinsale in it. Uh, although you do get John Voight in his last, probably last good acting performance as FDR. There's been Torah, 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 From Here to Eternity, and those are just about Pearl. I'm sure I'm forgetting others along the way, but there have been movies about World War II. I mean, Casablanca was filmed in 1943, and that was in the middle of the war. And Casablanca was about the Nazis, Nazi-occupied or Vichy France. Humphrey Bogart in the movie makes a reference to Pearl Harbor. So tons of movies about World War II, very little about 9-11. To get back to the question that I asked, which was the most more historically significant event, the attack on Pearl Harbor or the attack on 9-11? Now, 9-11 is the freshest in our minds, obviously. It was just 17 years ago. 9-11 is also probably the first, probably the most significant digital age event. It was on live television. You know, you had the morning shows get interrupted. Every, everything stopped and focused on New York and Washington, D.C. And then only later... That day, I think it was later that day, did we find out about United 93. Which, if you've not seen United 93, the movie by Paul Greengrass, I think it's Greengrass. Very good movie. Highly recommend it. But with 9-11, it was the first digital, the most major, if that's proper English, digital event. Everybody watched it. Everybody experienced it. It wasn't like with Pearl. I mean, it's 1941. Uh, nobody knew about it and came, until it came across the wires, and by then it was kind of late in the day. But with 9-11, you, you watched it and you experienced it in real time. When the first plane hit the tower, when the, when the first plane hit, people kind of were like, okay, something's happened at World Trade Center, but they were like, well, we think this was an accident. There wasn't even really a lot of information about what type of plane had hit the tower, whether it was a little, a small plane or whether it was passenger jet as it turned out to be. Then when the second plane hit, then that got everybody's attention. Everybody quickly realized this is something else entirely. This is an actual attack. And then the world stopped. I remember that morning I was working at a job where I had to go into work at 11 and be there until 8 in the evening. I was playing computer games that morning. I got up, I ate breakfast, played computer games, and it wasn't until I started to get ready for work, which was about, I think it was somewhere between 9 and 9.30, uh, when I turned on the TV to get ready to kind of, as I, to watch some TV as I was getting ready to work. By that point, I believe the second plane had hit. Uh, by that point, it was clear it was a terrorist attack. 
nobody had any illusions about it at that point. And then I remember going to work. I remember I was, I'd listened to the Bob and Tom show. This is 2001. So this is before podcasts or anything like that. I listened to the Bob and Tom show on the way to work. And that morning, the Bob and Tom show had been preempted by live news coverage broadcast on the radio. I can't remember what channel it was, but they, the show had been preempted. It was that major. And every channel you changed, you went to. You couldn't find a channel that played music because everybody had preempted for news coverage. But 9-11 is, I mean, and there have been tons of documentaries about 9-11 since then. Tuesday night, I DVR'd a couple of them so that I could sit down with my kids and watch it with them. They know about 9-11. They've talked about it in school. They've discussed it. They've learned about it. I'm sure that the the background, the historical context, all of those things that really need to be discussed with kids when you're talking about an event like that, I'm sure they weren't just weren't covered in school. I mean, heck, right? I don't even think my, my son, he's 12, I don't even think they've talked about World, World War I or World War II yet. I'm not even sure they've gotten to 20th century history. I think they've, I think he barely in the past, in his school years in the past, they've barely touched on the Civil War. So they got a ways to go. But you have these two attacks, very different attacks that occurred for very different reasons. And they were both historically significant. But if you're to compare them, which one had the greater impact or which one was more historically significant, which I think you could, those two terms are interchangeable in this circumstance. I think he, actually, I don't think, there's no question you have to go with Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, arguably, is one of the top five most historical, most significant events of the 20th century. Besides the maybe the Russian Revolution, the Great Depression, uh, the rise of uh, the Nazis, and maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's in the top five, if not in the top three. And here's why. Here's my argument for why Pearl Harbor is one of the most significant historical events of the 20th century. Look at the world on December 6th, 1941 the day before the attack. What was the state of the world at that time? Germany pretty much has complete control of continental Europe. They're fighting a war on two fronts. They're blitzing Britain, and they're doing it entirely by the air. They've committed no ground resources whatsoever. They're just bombing from the air Britain, just bombing the shit out of Britain. The Brits are fighting back, and they're they're withstalling the Nazis, but that's all they're doing. It's completely defensive. It's a completely defensive action on their part. In the East, you've got a similar stalemate with the Soviet Union, Stalingrad, which I'm not sure if Stalingrad had occurred before or after Pearl. I can't remember. But Hitler's opened up the Eastern Front, invading the Soviet Union, and the Soviets are doing the exact same thing. It's a defensive war. They're just trying to keep the Nazis from taking more territory. They're not pushing back at all, and it's not real clear that they're in a position at that point to be able to do so anytime soon. So the Nazis are winning World War II, which had been going on since 39. The United States is completely isolated. Well, not completely. The United States is isolated. Roosevelt's trying to find every way he can to get the U.S. into the war. He's he's using lend-lease with the Brits to supply the British so that they can continue to withstand the Nazis. You have a, a com, you have a stridently isolationist Republican Congress and you have a stridently isolationist American public. The United the American people do not want to enter World War II. World War I was 25 years earlier. There's still lots of veterans from that war. It's still it's still pretty fresh in people's minds. Nobody wants to get involved in another foreign entanglement 
like what happened in World War I. So the United States is exceptionally isolationist. In the Pacific, you've got the Japanese Empire. They've con they control large parts of China, they control Korea, and they're expanding. By that, at that point, the United States is cut off or has initiated an oil embargo, which actually is what provoked the attack on Pearl Harbor. But the United States has, has to punish the Japanese, the United States has imposed an oil embargo on Japan. The Japanese are completely externally dependent upon oil. They have no oil reserves of their own. They can't produce oil within their territory. In order to get oil, they have to get it from out, completely from outside sources. And their primary source was the, the United States. They, they invade China, they invade Korea, they expand into China even further. And the United States, in Roosevelt in the United States says, You're, no, 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 this is not acceptable. We're cutting you off. But there's no real resistance to the Japanese Empire. That and the United States was actually actively in negotiations with the Japanese. There were Japanese emissaries negotiating with the, with the Roosevelt administration at the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But that's the state of things on December 6, 1941. Pearl Harbor occurs. And the reason the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor was in order to be able to supply their military, their massive military operation, particularly their navy, their navy and their aircraft, in order to be able to supply that, they needed oil. Well, in order to get oil, they were going to have to invade other countries. They were particularly looking at the Philippines, I believe, and other places. And they knew that in order to be able to do that, and they knew that they wouldn't be able to do that without reprisal from the United States. They knew that if they did that, the United States was likely to respond. And their big concern was that the United States would respond militarily, particularly with the Navy. So in order to maintain their supply lines or expand their supply lines to provide the needed oil and fuel and everything for their military to expand, to, to maintain and to continue to expand their empire, they had to invade other places that had oil. And in order to be able to do that, they had to eliminate the Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. That was the basis for the attack. It wasn't to go to war with the United States. It was to cripple the Pacific Fleet so that the United States could not respond militarily to any action that the Japanese took in the Pacific. Their hope was that by the time the Pacific Fleet, if they were able to completely cripple the Pacific Fleet, and they were hoping and this is where the attack failed. They didn't just want to destroy the... They weren't looking to hit the destroyers or the support or the escorts, which is what they ultimately hit at Pearl. They wanted the aircraft carriers. And if not, I believe for a delay due to bad weather that caused a delay for a couple of days, there would have been aircraft carriers stationed at Pearl when the attack occurred. But they got delayed, and therefore they weren't there when the attack occurred. The Japanese primarily wanted to destroy the aircraft carriers. But because they weren't there, they failed. And because they weren't able to hit those carriers and destroy or disable or cripple those carriers, that had a significant impact on the rest of the Pacific War, and in particular, our ability to respond and respond quickly. But the Japanese were hoping that by crippling the Pacific Fleet, um, and particularly the aircraft carriers, that by the time the United States was able to rebuild, they would have completed all of their expansionist operations and gotten everything they needed, and they'd be entrenched and impossible to move. They had this pipe dream. Some people in the Japanese uh, in the Japanese uh, government had this, uh, which was primarily a military government, had this belief that we'd actually shrug off 
the attack on Pearl, that we were so isolationist and had such a strong desire, that the American people had such a strong desire to avoid war, that we would kind of, that we would absorb the attack on Pearl. That, that was a pipe dream. And I think Yamamoto, who I think was the prime minister at, at the time, I believe he was the one that said, we've, we've woken the sleeping bear. He was the he still carried out the operation. He you know, he still supported it, but I believe he was the one that thought that this was going to end up badly for them. He kind of had an idea of how this was going to end. The Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. They do cripple the Pacific fleet that's there, but the aircraft carriers are all all survived. They weren't there. They weren't even damaged. And the United States declares war against Japan. And then Hitler, the next day, declares war against the United States. And the United States had already been engaged with the Nazis in, in the Atlantic in, in regards to uh, commercial shipping and escorting commercial shipping because the, the Nazis were using their U-boats to sink commercial, sh commercial ships, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare. But the United States ends, enters the war and immediately begins to fight back against the Nazis. The entire, the Western Front changes. And with the United States fighting on the Western Front, fighting back, and in particular fighting in Africa, in Northern Africa, because that's really the uh, the primary thrust early on was in Northern Africa and then going up across the Mediterranean into Italy and Greece and so forth, famously depicted in Patton. But it's the United States fighting on those fronts that forces Hitler to divert his forces from the East, especially given how horrible Russian winters are during that time period and how devastating they are, not just on the Soviets. You hear about the siege of Stalingrad and the famines and all that kind of stuff and the people that starved to death because the Nazis laid siege and you couldn't get supplies in there. And truth be told, Stalin didn't really try all that hard to get supplies in there. Hitler pulls his, east, his forces out of the east to focus on the thrust from the south across the Mediterranean from North Africa, and also to reinforce, to bolster his defenses in France and along the Western Front because the United States has entered the war, which takes the pressure off the Soviet Union, allows them to uh, mobilize their forces, reorganize, restructure, and begin to engage in a offensive war of attrition against the Nazis on the Eastern Front. The attack on Pearl Harbor gets the United States not just into the war with Japan, but also into the war with the Nazis because Hitler foolishly, I think, declared war on the United States because he and Japan, because Germany and Japan were allies by that point. And within three years of the United States entering the war, you have D-Day and you have the surrender, and within four years, you have the surrender of the Nazis. Within, f within four years, the war is over in Germany. And the entire complexion of Europe changes. It's completely different with Germany being right smack dab in the middle. Germany split in half. And you have a incredibly powerful, you have two, and you have the birth of the superpowers. You have the birth of the United States as one superpower, and you have the birth of the Soviet Union as the other in Europe. And it is, and that begins the Cold War. Even before World War II ends, you pretty much have the Cold War starting. Then there's the Pacific War, the liberation of the Philippines, the liberation of China, the liberation of Korea, the ultimate defeat of the Japanese Empire, and most significantly, the development of the atomic bomb. There's no Pearl Harbor. There's no atomic bomb, at least not within four years. There's no atomic bomb. There may be an atomic bomb eventually, but it may have been a decade or even two decades after that. Yes, the Nazis were working on an atomic bomb, but they didn't get, they weren't get, they didn't get very far 
and they didn't commit a lot of resources to it. And, and ultimately, I think with it was 42 or 43, I think the Nazis just gave up on it, and they never got very far with it. The Soviet Union didn't develop the atomic bomb until 1949, four years after we had developed it. And if not for having a well-placed spy in the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos in New Mexico during the development of the bomb and working in Los Alamos after the war, they wouldn't have had the bomb by 1949 anyway. It would have been much later than that, if at all. But no Pearl Harbor, no atomic bomb. And obviously the atomic bomb changes the entire complexion of the rest of the 20th century, from the Korean War to Vietnam to Cuban to the Cuban Missile Crisis to really everything that occurred after that. The formation of NATO, the, the Axis power, or not the Axis, the, uh, the Warsaw Pact, all of that. No Pearl Harbor, none of that happens. If there's no Pearl Harbor, the Nazis probably maintain control of Western Europe, of Europe, continental Europe. They may, be even, they may even defeat the British eventually. I think what, we, what you would probably would have seen if the United States had not entered the war, I think you would have seen a kind of a Cold War stalemate between the Nazis and the Soviet Union. I think they would have fought each other to a draw, kind of an Iran-Iraq war type of thing in the 80s, where they would have fought for a long time, Nobody, nobody really accomplishes anything, and then they just decide. You know what? We're gonna, we're just gonna stop and lick our wounds, and we'll just stand on this. We'll just stand on the on the each side of this line and give each other the stink eye. I think that's probably what would happen. And then you would have the United States off by itself, really powerless to do anything or to affect any real change. Probably wouldn't have been any real economic benefit because, uh, or we wouldn't have been an we wouldn't have become an economic power because. No, that's the other thing. No Pearl Harbor, no entering the war, War, no ending of the Great Depression. I know my liberal Democratic friends want to say that FP, FDR and the New Deal and all that kind of stuff ended the Great Depression. It was not. It was World War II that ended the Great Depression. It was World War II and the fact that the rest of the globe, except for the United States, the rest of the globe was destroyed. And we got to rebuild it because we were the only ones that could. With the Marshall Plan with the rebuilding of Japan because we occupied Japan and we neutered the, the Japanese empire, basically. Helped turn them into a, uh, an economic powerhouse. The same with South Korea by protecting them from the north once the Korean War was over. All of that stuff. No Pearl Harbor. None of that happens. You don't get the United Nations. You don't get, you don't get Eisenhower as president, Kennedy, Nixon. You probably don't get any of the presidents that you ultimately had after World War II. You can't say anything, you can't say any of that about 9-11. You can argue for the supposed liberation of Afghanistan, although truth be told, we're still there fighting a war 17 years later and not really getting very far. You could argue the invasion of Iraq, but that's not a virtue because the invasion of Iraq takes away the check on Iran and turns Iran into a, a, a regional power like it had never been before the invasion of Iraq. Everybody complains about the Iranians have such incredible influence of power and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's because we got rid of Saddam Hussein. So you have that. You have some regional influence or change in the Middle East, but you don't have the global change that came from Pearl Harbor or the result of Pearl Harbor, the United States entering the war. 
the United States entering the war the way that it did. We didn't, we weren't dragged in kicking and screaming like with World War One. We, you know, this was, this was righteous fury. This was the mobilization of an entire nation torn in effort like nothing you had ever seen before. Not even during the Civil War did you see anything like this. And the Civil War was incredibly personal, but this was, World War II was something, it was on a completely different level from that. And that doesn't happen without the attack on Pearl Harbor. So my argument is Pearl Harbor is clearly the more historically significant event. It changed the 20th century. That one event changed the 20th century. Without that event, none of the things that happened after that would have happened. And certainly the United States wouldn't become a superpower. We weren't a superpower before Pearl Harbor. And if there had not been a Pearl Harbor, we wouldn't have been a superpower afterward. We'd be, we'd be kind of the way Britain is now. Important, but not significant, but not important. I'll say that. But I could be wrong. And if you think I'm wrong, don't hesitate to contact the show by email, by Twitter, or by Facebook. And let me know what you think. Give me your opinion, your feedback on on this question. Which was the more historically significant event? The attack on Pearl Harbor or the attack on 9-11? This question is definitely different than the last one. Let me just say... The research I did for this one, it was a little bit of research, but only because I just kind of wanted to get some different perspectives in a very broad way. And so I went to my source of sources, Wikipedia, and there actually was a page for this, but it was a massive page. The amount of height, it might be the most hyperlinked page I've ever been to, but it did provide a decent kind of cliff notes summary of the various perspectives. But the question was, what is the meaning of life? There's actually a page on Wikipedia about the meaning of life. And that's the question I'm asking is, what is the meaning of life? And another way to think of it is, why are we here? What is our purpose? And in reading the Wikipedia page, I found it, a lot of the things that were covered or summarized in very, in say, eight to 10 lines, eight to 10 lined paragraphs. A lot of things that were covered were things I'd already heard about or been exposed to previously and that type of thing. But it was still very interesting. And the meaning of life is probably, I mean, it's the question. It's the question. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What purpose do we serve? What does it mean to be human? Because the meaning of life for a human is different than the meaning of life for a dog. Because meaning requires awareness, uh, self-awareness in a lot of ways. So a dog or another, a non-human animal lacks that self-awareness, lacks that sense of existentialism. So from their point of view, there's no meaning because you have to understand what meaning means, I guess, first. But in thinking about that question, and everybody's thought about that question, it might be the most explored question ever. It's probably a question that predates even the development of language, if that's possible. There's no, there would be no mechanism of articulation, but the impulse or the inclination would be there, I would think. But what is the meaning of life? And the first thing I thought of when asking that question recently was, does life have to have a meaning? How important is it for life to have a meaning? For life to have meaning? And then what qualifies as meaning? What are the essential characteristics of meaning for life? Are there any? And 
in thinking about that, going to the Wikipedia page, you know, there was the scientific, there was the scientific aspect of it. There was the philosophical aspect of it. There was the religious aspect of it. There was the, dare I say, there was the biological aspect of it. The biological aspect being in, not so much on the Wikipedia page, but in my own thinking would be the uh, the biological imperative. What is the meaning of life? From a biological perspective, the meaning of life is self-perpetuation and procreation. Survive and flourish. Perpetuation of the species. Perpetuation of the species through self-preservation. The longer you live, the more likely you are to procreate. Procreation essential to the perpetuation of the species. The other thing about survival is the longer you're able to survive, better you're able to evolve, to adapt, and transfer those, uh, those characteristics and those qualities to your offspring and to your offspring's offspring and so forth. Perpetuation of the species. So there's the biological perspective in that regard. And that perspective, that the biological imperative, the perpetuation of the species, is if you kind of strip down a lot of the, uh, the infrastructure of human society, of human culture. I'm not talking specific cultures like South Brazilian culture versus Spanish culture versus British culture versus Irish culture. I'm not talking that kind of cultures. Those, uh, those kind of geocentric cultures. I'm talking the macro-human culture, all of those commonalities that we as a species have. If you strip all of that out, all of those layers that have built up over thousands of years, it comes down to the perpetuation of the species. A lot of what we do is derivative of self-preservation and flourishing of the species. There's a lot of research about how uh, fight-or-flight mechanisms are have adapted to service modern human culture, in particular modern economic culture, in a lot of ways, in a lot of different aspects, whether it's uh, people who like guns or people who like cars or other aspects, that type of thing. But it all comes down to, strip it all away, it kind of comes down to the biological imperative, self-preservation towards the perpetuation of the species. 85-year-old white guys, rich white guys who continue to do everything humanly possible to continue to amass as much money as humanly possible, even though the phrase is entirely correct, regardless of what you believe happens when you die, one thing is certain, you can't take it with you. Although the ancient Egyptians thought that that was not true and that you could in fact take it with you, which is why you got buried with all your stuff, or at least your important stuff. But we know you can't take it with you. So what is the point of an 85-year-old billionaire continuing to amass as much wealth as humanly possible. What's the point? To give it to his kids, his family, maybe, self-aggrandizement, ego fulfillment, an inferiority complex, all of the above, fill in the blank here, that type of thing. But biologically, it's about self-preservation and perpetuation towards perpetuating the species. Stay alive long enough to make babies, and as many babies as you possibly can. Of course, human beings, especially now, we don't do that. We stay alive because it's better than being dead. But we don't do that toward perpetuating the species. It's not about making babies. Making babies can be an important, really, really important part of that. And there clearly can be meaning derived from making babies and raising babies beyond the biological imperative. That much is obviously clear. That's been probably the most clear aspect of that since the, the, the beginning of human, human culture. And even prior to that, with uh, precursors to modern human beings. And we hear more and more all the time about scientific discoveries about how 
Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal interbred and that how modern human how modern human beings, Homo sapiens, developed from, for lack of a better term, crossbreeding of other humanoid species, our um, forebears. But what is the meaning of life? Does life have to have a meaning? Can you just go through your life just going through your life? Do you have to have a purpose? Does that purpose have to be incredibly complicated? Can it just be enough to can it just be enough to fulfill the biological imperative, perpetuation of the species, to further advance the human race through procreation? Even if you do a crappy job of, is there still meaning from is there meaning in that? Or is meaning just a value judgment? open to interpretation. Everybody, meaning means something different to each individual. Should we have a, should there be a human, a human-wide, a species-wide definition of meaning? Should there be a human, a human, a humanity-wide goal, um, a human-wide aspiration that all, that all members of the species should try to attain for the betterment of the species? And if so, what should that look like? Should it be based on a religion? Should it be based on a philosophy? Should it be based on some other cultural norm? And if so, what should that be? For me personally, and I came upon this, as with a lot of things, when I was in college. And I figured out, I've always, I always knew even before I went to college, I always knew that my life was not going to be defined, and I, or I wasn't going to find meaning and fulfillment. I wasn't going to find fulfillment from my career. I went to college to get an education so that I could get a job so that I could make money. That was the plan, was just to make money. And then once I have money, I have not necessarily the freedom, but the flexibility to pursue my interests as I can. Money was a means to an end to, for flexibility to pursue my aspirations as best as I could, whatever those, whatever those aspirations turned out to be. Here's another question. Does the meaning of life, can the meaning of life change? Is it different depending on where you are in your life? So for example, what is the meaning of life to a five-year-old, for a five-year-old compared to a 15-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old? Does the meaning of life change depending on where you are in the life cycle and depending on where you are in life at that point? If you're 15 years old and you're poor, the meaning of life to you is probably going to be significantly different than if you're 15 years old and middle class or wealthy. If you're, the meaning of life might be different if you're 15 years old living in North Korea than 15 years old living in Russia or in South America or in Canada or someplace else, Somalia for that matter. The meaning of life is probably going to be different for you. And then let's say five, ten years go by. You're in a different place at a different time in your life. Has that meaning changed? Does that meaning that you had at 15 still hold true at 25? For me, going back to college, I figured out, and I don't think it really had anything to do with my education as much as, obviously with an education you're exposed to new ideas and everything, and you think about those ideas, and you ponder them, and really, but really though, what college was for me was I was isolated. I left, I left home, not too far from home, but I went off by myself. I didn't kind of cut ties with everything I had known previously. I went away, far enough away and isolated myself to where I could have the time and the absence of responsibility 
significant responsibility to find myself and to discover things. And a lot of that came down to thinking about a lot of stuff and asking a lot of questions. And it kind of established the my approach to life, not so much an approach to life, but my curiosity and not and my desire to ask questions, even if those questions can't be answered. Uh, finding virtue in the uh, in the inquiry. At a certain point, I realized that the meaning of life, looking at it from a historical perspective and from a philosophical perspective, regardless of the philosophy that you kind of adhered to, and I'm I kind of have I kind of look at philosophy as if the one nice thing about philosophy is that most of the time, one thing about kind of great virtue of philosophy is the lack of dogma, generally speaking, the lack of dogma that you have with religion. Religion has a belief infrastructure to it. Most religions, almost all religions have a belief infrastructure to them that is not to be questioned and certainly not to be changed. It is exceptionally difficult to change a any aspect of a belief system, especially when that belief system is tied to a con the concept of a supreme being or supreme beings if you're a polytheistic religion. Philosophy doesn't really have that dogma issue. Can you have some dogmatic individuals? Absolutely. Certainly. Can you have dogmatic philosophies? To a degree, yes. At the same time, those philosophies are a lot easier to modify or ad adjust or adapt than, than, say, a religion would because there isn't that infallibility aspect, that dogma aspect that comes with the uh, the infallibility of a supreme being that every that the belief system is tied to. In studying a limited amount of philosophy, studying history, and just asking a lot of questions, some of them were insightful. Some of them were a lot of them were kind of stupid. But asking those questions and pondering the possible answers and realizing that there are not that there are questions that simply cannot be answered. Or there are questions that simply can't not be answered yet. And that just because they cannot, there isn't an answer doesn't mean that the question is without virtue. But ultimately, I came to the conclusion, and I still, to this day, maintain this conclusion, this belief. And I think this is true for the species. The meaning of life is to evolve. The meaning of life is to make yourself better make yourself better, to make humanity better, to not just perpetuate the species, but to develop the species, to, to evolve, to improve the species. It's not just enough to survive. It's not just enough to survive and adapt because evolutionary theory, a large part of evolutionary theory is that adaptation comes from necessity, the necessity being to survive. You adapt, species adapt to survive. To perpetuate. You get the classic Galapagos, the Galapagos Islands example, Darwin and so forth. That's what evolution is about. Human evolution, on the other hand, is different. We have the ability, unlike any other species on the planet, to control, to directly control and influence, to directly control and manipulate our development, our evolution. Think about what the human, how the human race has changed in the last 150 years or maybe the last 200 years with the Industrial Revolution. We were barely able to get off the ground in an airplane by the end of the 19th century. Within 75 years, we were landing on the moon. By, by 1945, not only had we split the atom, 
but we had learned how to turn it into the most destructive, incredible, the most destructive force ever created, and then learned how to, to turn it into an energy source. Human beings in the 1930s and 1940s maybe lived into, think the average life expectancy, I think was in the early 60s. Now the average life expectancy, I believe, is 74, 75, depending on your gender. In less than a century, the human human race has been able to add ten years to our life to our life expectancy. I believe the average height of a of a of a man in the nineteen twenties or about a hundred years ago, I think, was five foot four. Now the average height is five eight, five nine. Vaccines, antibiotics, we can treat cancer, we can prevent infections, we can mothers can give birth to babies without the fear of of the exceptionally high possibility of dying during childbirth. Look at we've done look at what we've done with poverty in the last three decades. As I talked about in the um, in the the first quick hit for this episode for this podcast I should say. Computer technology, the internet, the connectiveness that we've developed in the last two decades, television, radio, all of that stuff. We were using, I mean 150 years ago we were using steam power for everything. Then we developed we were able to harness, develop to generate and harness electricity, telephones, telegraphs, all of that stuff. The amount of communication that we're able to do, the fact that you can, the fact that you can in less than a day travel to the other, less than, uh, less than a day travel to the other side of the globe. Couldn't do that 100 years ago, probably couldn't do that 50 years ago. That is human, the human race controlling, manipulating and controlling its own development. And we're accelerating our development so much so that we may be, it may be, the, the pace, the rate of change is so rapid that human beings mentally, psychologically, maybe even neurologically aren't able to keep up at this point to some degree. But to me, the meaning of life is to evolve, to make yourself better. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be just a little every day. I try to learn something new every day. I try with my children, I try to teach them a little something every day. Even if it's a something as simple as how to channel surf on the PlayStation 4 using the, P- under the, using the PS View, which is how we get our cable. Something as simple as that. Try to impart some knowledge and some wisdom on people I work with, even if it's just a little bit. Learn something from them, if I can. Even if I'm not really paying attention at that particular moment, trying to retain it and to come back to it later, to explore it later. No two people are exactly the same, and no two people... Even if they've, they've lived together their entire lives, they're in the same family, the same household, they're around each other all day, every day. They're still very different people. And how each individual goes about making themselves better is entirely at their discretion. Now, I think there can be some discussion about what qualifies as making yourself better, but that's, that discussion is always there on just about any aspect of life. From the choice of socks that you, the choice of socks that you choose to wear on any given day to where you decide to live, who you decide to be in relationships with, what you believe, what you decide to believe at any given time, to your uh, use of grammar. Any aspect of life is open to a discussion, but how you choose or how you go about finding meaning, how you go about making yourself better, is entirely discretionary. And I think, now, do I think that you have to make yourself better? No. Should that be what you aspire to do? I don't think anybody would have a real issue with that, with that as an aspiration. 
And how you achieve that aspiration, again, is entirely subjective. It's entirely discretionary. That lies with the individual. How that individual chooses to make the, how that individual makes themselves better and how they choose to go about accomplishing that goal or achieving that aspiration is entirely left to the individual. Whether it is designing and building and dressing up in cosplay every weekend and hitting every Comic Con from here to Shanghai or becoming a professional gamer or a uh, YouTube celebrity or a podcaster or an anonymous op-ed writer for the New York Times who supposedly works for the Trump administration. However you choose to go about making yourself better is entirely to the individual. And that's the way it should be. It should be to the individual. It shouldn't be left to the masses. It shouldn't be left to the culture. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be left to those things. Now, obviously, there are, con- there are considerations that have to be made. If you're engaging in self-destructive behavior, don't, you're probably not bettering yourself. And there may be an argument for intervention, rehabilitation, course correction. There may be uh, the need for that. And that's a discussion to be had, clearly. Because we are empathetic, sympathetic, caring beings, unless you're a full-blown sociopath or, as in my case, a high-functioning sociopath. It's not a straight line. It's not a perfect answer. It, it's not an all-encompassing all answer. It is an answer that I have reached myself that over the last 25 years hasn't changed. I haven't seen anything to change that conclusion. That's not to say tomorrow I don't come up, I don't discover something or realize something different or that that meaning that I have determined cannot change. It cannot be modified or can't, that it can't be or that it can't be expanded upon or expounded upon further. Life is change, change of perspective, change of scenery, change of hair color, change of philosophy, change of meaning of life. So I reserve the right to come back to this question as often as I feel necessary or as often as the circumstances dictate, as with everything. But the meaning of life, as I said, it's the question. And I think sharing that question, just asking the question and pondering it, and collaborating on it, discussing it, even if no conclusions have been can be reached. And I'm not saying that there may be there that even there needs to be a conclusion, that there needs to be an answer given. This is one of those questions that an argument can also be made that it has no answer. Because answering the question would require uh, agreement upon a set of preconditions, applying a, a predetermined set of assumptions before you could answer the question. How do you define life? How do you define meaning? How do you define what? And that's just looking at the, the looking at the language of the question itself. Is the question properly worded? Is there a better, more thorough form of that question? Is there a better expression of that inquiry that can yield a more specific or concrete result? And that's before you even deal with the inquiry itself. But this may be a topic or a question that we come back to later or I come back to later, because it is, like I said, it is the question. And it's certainly not something that I that I think you can even begin to explore in 30 minutes of a podcast. But let me know what you think. Feedback. This is a great question for feedback, and I'd love to get some feedback on this. You can reach me by, give me your thoughts, give me your questions, give me your insults, your death threats, if you want to do that. 
anything that any feedback that you want to provide me on this topic, the Pearl Harbor versus 9-11 question, or any other question that's been presented in this show so far. I can be reached by email, I have questions podcast at gmail.com. Twitter at I have Q U eight four nine two two eight two seven. Or just look up I Have Questions Podcast on the search feature of your Twitter app. Facebook.com forward slash I Have Questions Podcast. This has been I Have Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and attention, and good night.